Hello, thank you, and uh, welcome to Our Best Interest. This is our fifth episode of the season, and we're mixing it up a little bit today. Uh, I am going to take the lead as the uh, the host and interviewer, and our victim for today is Michael himself, Michael Rocco. Thank you for sharing your story, because... Um, you know, you're, you know, you and I came to this in the same place, you know, we're both writing books, we're both in this process of discovery, and outside the fog. Um, and I, I know you've been a big help to me. And I hope, you know, our friendship, uh, you know, has helped you as well. And, and I think it does. And, and hopefully there's, there's others out there. And, you know, we've all made our, our contact. So, um, so tell us about, well, tell you, so you're working on your book, what is your book title? Purpose, yeah. um, well, I've changed the working title to Vital Signs. And um, I got feedback from a few people who have been following my website, michael.rocco.author.com. I, I had a uh, Spanish language title and it, it wasn't getting the feedback I was hoping for. So I decided to go with this new title, Vital Signs. What it is, is a um, it's a creative nonfiction memoir in the style of psychological thriller. And it brings the reader um, beginning in, it sets off in my, uh, my early adulthood after I was already quite struggling, uh, although not aware that I was struggling so much, or at least the causes for my struggle. And I, and I go out in the world, the beginning of the book and, um, you follow me through some different episodes of trying to contend with racism and my social identities and um, eventually clawing my way into a reasonable occupation where I was eventually able to have some semblance of comfort in my life. Of course, you know what happens after that. I, I fall to pieces and uh, come out of the fog and reassemble myself and here I am. So I go back toward the end of the book into my early childhood years to try to figure out how I became the person that set off from my hometown when you first meet me in the beginning of the book. And I think um, I'll be reading from some of those chapters a, a little bit um, later on. So it's later in the book, but early in my life that uh, those formative years, you know, so. Now, did a, you take the, did you take the approach that, I mean, it's pretty much a memoir based in fact, as best you can remember it through your eyes, or did you take right. creative, creative liberties and somewhat? I, I, I take very few creative liberties. Um, now, you know, there are occasions when there might be disagreement in memory between, for example, myself and my adoptive sister about, an event that happened when we were young. And, you know, we go to 
uh, we had been going to my adoptive parents um, to try to be a source of resolution for those disagreements. And sometimes they were able to do it. A lot of times I couldn't go to them at all because we don't talk about certain topics, uh, particularly my adoptive mother, Mm -hmm. who's recently died, as you know. So my uh, my father is left and he doesn't really seem to remember much. So, you know, we we tend to come to uh, a reasonable agreement about our disputes when they exist. And I try not to write it in a way that can be too um, non-factual. Important that I that I represent this as my perspective and not of anybody else, because, mm-hmm. as you know, we adoptees have great variation among us. I don't claim that this is a universal story, although I believe that the broad strokes are very common among transracial adoptees in particular, but uh, all adoptees generally. And so while it's not applicable to everyone, some parts are applicable to anyone. And particularly um, the real core messages of the book, which are about our shared humanity and our need for connectedness and what happens when we're dislocated from from our histories and from our from our social environments is just that realization that wow all this time a lot of these things i've been doing a lot of these maladaptive procedures and and uh, habits that i have uh, can be pretty closely tied to the adoption phenomenon and yeah yeah well why don't you you know so that's the book and uh you know we look forward to it coming out and what is your adoption story um from your earliest memories about when you first learned about it some maybe some key points from your from your childhood that uh you want the audience to hear sure um my birth mother had been separated from her common law husband. They both immigrated from Chile to New York City, and they had two existing, I'm sorry, three existing children at the time. Um, they were separated, living in an apartment independently of her common law husband. They were having a hard time. He's reputed to have been a womanizer. So um, she uh, had a friendship with a gentleman in the neighborhood and um, they got together. I was the result. Um, He wanted to marry her when he found out and she was fearful of losing her other children. And in fact, her common law husband told her when he found out about her pregnancy that she better get rid of that baby or else she would never see her existing kids again. So my my mother, who was a limited English language speaker living on her own, um, you know, in a a new country, um, she was 27 years old at the time. So not your typical, you know, a high school cheerleader uh, story that we get oftentimes in the uh, in the closed adoption, you know, baby scoop era. But instead, she was a grown woman on her own. But nonetheless, uh, her common law husband had 
every um, legal power at that time, given the misogynistic state of law to actually, you know, be, make good on his threat and take her kids. And she, she understood that to be a real possibility. So, you know, I was, I was abandoned and I say abandoned. Um, some people don't like that word because that's how it felt. And I know that's how it felt, not because I remember feeling that way then, but because I still feel that way now. Yeah. And, and you'll know in my story that that feeling nearly killed me. You know, I mean, 27, you're right. It's, 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 an, you know, technically an adult, but still a very young, uh, especially an immigrant coming to a new country. She's in a strange land, strange rules, you know, so, so anyone can sympathize with that situation for her as right. well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it took me, you know, I, it took me a little bit to be able to situate. First of all, I never really considered my mother's situation until I came out of the fog. It never really dawned on me. But, you know, my father was, um, you know, by all accounts, a fun, loving, nice guy who tried to do the right thing, you know, so to speak, by taking care of me and her. But she she was not available to that. Um, he was from Puerto Rico. He had served in the Merchant Marines. I There's a terrible story about how I was unable to meet him. Um, so let's fast forward. I was with my mother for 12 days. And I would imagine there was some bonding that occurred during that time, some attachment. And uh, but nonetheless, after those 12 days, I was handed over to the adoption agency in New York City and off to foster care um, where I don't know. I don't know how many caretakers I had or how many places I I was passed through. But uh, it wasn't very long. It was uh, less than four months before a Polish and Italian and Swedish couple from northern New Jersey took me home to the woods in a bucolic little town in, in the mountains and uh, introduced me to my older sister, who was also adopted from the same agency, brown like me, not as brown. But um, so she my. My sister that I grew up with um, is of Asian Indian descent, half Asian Indian and half Polish. So she is um, clearly non-white by phenotype, but um, still um, white enough that, you know, there wasn't a lot of discrimination. Well, I shouldn't speak for her, but I did not see her uh, facing the level of discrimination that I did with, I think, my, you know, kind of clearly uh, Latin American phenotype. Right. And so I grew up in a very conservative, all white, almost small town, conservative to this day. And, you know, not very tolerant of others. We had literally um, minorities uh, across the train tracks. You know, I describe my my relationship to, to that reality in, in my book um, as I contend with trying to form an ethnic identity from the fragmented pieces that I barely had. So now, now, do you remember, you know, in your younger years, you and your sister, did you bond with some of this adoption, this shared adoption phenomenon or more of a antagonistic? Was there 
heightened sibling rivalry between you or how would you describe the relationship? Well, it, it changed over time. My, you know, I, I'm going to be a little bit reluctant to say too much about my sister because it's not my story to tell, but well, she was my older sister. So, you know, four years older is a lot um, when you're a kid. And so she always had a different scene. Um, she was, you know, always in the schools four years preceding me. So the teachers, you know, got to know her and some have some understanding of our family through her. And, and she was, and I don't use her uh, or anybody's real name um, here or in the book. My name is in fact, as you know, Michael Rocco, that's the name I was born with, but it's not the name that is on my diploma hanging in my office. Um, in any event, I'm the, I am, I've reclaimed the, the name that my mother gave me at birth. And that's how I exist in adoption spaces. And when I write about adoption, but uh, going back. Um, so my sister and I, you know, we did get along fairly well when we were young, we played together. She looked out for me. She'll tell you that, uh, you know, that she looked after me, especially in the younger years, but there was, you know, um, problems that grew over time. She was the compliant adoptee. And I was the, well, not at first, but I became the acting out type of adoptee, you know, and this is in Nancy Verrier's um, kind of framework. But um, so, you know, I was always getting in trouble. You know, I got caught for everything and I was daring. So I got caught for a lot of things. And my sister was always you know, doing the right thing. And so, yeah, there was a little resentment, but over the years we grew apart. Um, she, the last, the last thing I remember my sister, and this is one of the most important memories of her for me. Um, of course, she's still around, of course. I don't mean to speak like she's deceased, but uh, she, um, she defended me against a bully in the neighborhood who was calling me nigger one day at the, at the end of our street. And uh, or spick or I can't remember which one, but you know, as long as you know, as long as I was known that it was known that I I I was lesser, you know. <laughs> so she defended me, you know, and that was a big deal. But no, we never talked about adoption. And in fact, my sister would, from time to time, um, be a bit racist toward me. And uh, you know, Jump she on. she claims to not remember this, but you know, I certainly do. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we definitely differ in so many ways. And, and I think this is another one that um, and I can see some corollaries and contrast between you and your sister and me and my sister. Um, I was the older and um, I think and she was, you know, similarly um, darker. And, you know, we don't know her lineage. She's never done a search. Um, but you know, I mentioned in my book, and this is something we grew up with that the kids in the neighborhood would call her Aunt Jemima, you know, and, you know, there were times when, you know, I, I could tell you the number of times I've been in a fight in my life. And the vast majority of them were over defending her, you know, yeah. all the way through high school, um, you know, but like I said, I can see that, um, you know, the younger brother, older, older sister, um, is, is the opposite in, in my situation. 
Right. So now when what what do you when do you recall the first issues with with adoption? You know, they're that, always there. That you know, the, I mean, is there one is there one event where you recall a traumatic event or this is sort of me that you always knew you were adopted? Well, yeah, I always knew I was adopted. I mean, it was hard to not know. My parents are European descent. And, um, you know, there's there's hardly mistaking me for a biological relation of theirs. There's this, not, you know, it's I mean, very you clear. Don't look, you don't look Polish, huh? <laughs> not a little. So um, Italian, maybe a little, <laughs> you know. I, I used to hear that when people would ask me, well, you know, we'd go out like this. So where are you from? You know, and I'd be like, what do you mean? You know, my hometown, I would reply. And uh, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, where are your people from? You know, and then, and I would say, well, you know, I would lie actually when I was very young. And uh, at some point, Jack, I, I told one of my buddies a, you know, around the time of first or second grade that I was Native American because I knew being Puerto Rican was not good and uh, that I would be, uh, you know, othered. Did, were your parents, did your parents tell you that you were Puerto Rican descent? and, and Well, Venice? yeah, uh, you know, in my selection, my reading selection, I get into that. I can okay. tell you now or I could save it for that. Either way. I'll save it. Okay. But, you know, I had a great, great struggle with with um, with race and racism, really, you know, ethnic discrimination. I always knew I was adopted. It was very clear from our respective phenotypes. Um, but no, I did not know I was Chilean and Puerto Rican. Um, like I said, I I, I tell, I'll talk about that in the in the uh, reading. But um, one day when I was it was prior to school age years. Um, I was allowed to, you were allowed to walk around as a little kid back then out in the world without, without much supervision, especially in the little, little hometown I grew up in, little Mayberry. But, um, you know, so I walked down the end of the driveway where there was a huge boulder that sat there left over from road construction. And I, I, I was sitting on top of this uh, rock. I climbed up on it and um, there was a neighbor girl. I remember her name to this day, it was Heather. And she was this wispy blonde little girl. And her mother was gardening in the front yard in the flower bed. And she was wispy blonde woman who'd looked just like her. And I knew of Heather, but I didn't know her. Um, they had moved in shortly before. And she came um, and approached me and she said, you know, hi, what's your name? You know, I told her my name and she said, um, are you an orphan? And I said, what? Now, I never heard that word before. I didn't know what that meant. I said, no, an orphan wasn't, you know, she said, you don't have a mommy. I said, yes, I do. She's right in there. She said, no, you don't have a mommy. Like, you don't even look like your mommy. Like, there's my mommy. Look. And I was like, yeah, my mommy's right in there. So, you know, she walked away confused. I walked away confused. And I, and I went to my father later and I said, dad, what's the story with this girl next door? You know, she's asking me if I'm an orphan, what's an orphan? Am I an orphan? And uh, she was asking about mom and, you know, I explained what happened. And, and he said, no, you're not an orphan. Well, we don't, we don't think you're an orphan. 
Um, so, you know, this was like, okay, well, what am I? Um, I knew I was adopted, but it never occurred to me that, you know, and he explained that orphaned me- meant my parents had died. I, I didn't ever consider that a possibility. I was simply, I felt misplaced, you know, in a certain way, but I, I never considered that I had lost my, my mother, my family, that they don't exist. You know, the word adoptee has, has come to represent us. But when you think about it, that's a, you know, political correct um, term, you know, which, which had taken over orphan or um, bastard child, you know, I mean, plenty of, many of other, you know, pejorative language that uh, has been used. Um, And I think a lot of that, you know, it seems to, you know, go part and parcel with the whole fog of adoption, making it this pretty little, beautiful little thing. You're not an orphan, they're an adoptee, you know, that it's, it's turning a a positive bent on it, um, which does feed into some of that narrative of, of a happy, lovely world. Um, Because I felt the same way. I don't think I ever heard those words or thought of myself in those terms until I was well into my adulthood. Like, yeah, I guess I was an orphan. I lived in an orphanage for a period of time, but you know, that was, was kind of whitewashed over. Your adage, Michael, that we're working with today is what you don't know can't hurt you. And you're going to give us some examples from your reading um, along that line. And then we'll have a, a further discussion once you're, once you're finished, when you're ready. This is from a chapter called Chico and the Man. It comes, as I mentioned earlier, uh, later in the book, when I go back to my earlier life after bringing you through what uh, Lifton refers to as the Zen slap. It was Friday night, and on Friday night, Dad and I would watch Chico and the Man on TV. Dad, it's almost time for Chico, I shouted. He looked over his glasses from behind the newspaper. I didn't want to miss a second of the show. I liked everything about it. Even the theme song made me happy. They even played it on the radio. The singer told Chico not to get discouraged. He told him that the man wasn't too hard to understand. I was sure he meant it wasn't hard to understand the old white man with the hat who owned the auto repair shop where Chico worked. But I also thought there was something more to it than that. I thought the man might be like lots of other old white men that Chico would meet. It didn't seem to me that Chico had a hard time understanding things, though. It seemed to me. Chico understood the man well enough to get a job from him as a mechanic and even convince him to let Chico live in his van inside the repair shop. Chico was smart and funny and seemed really nice, but his life was hard. Sometimes my life felt hard too. As the intro played, I saw grown-ups and brown children who looked like me in city streets. In one part, they showed Chico walking in the middle of the crowd. There he is, I pointed him out each time. The people in the crowd seemed calm and happy. Most of all, they looked like they belonged with each other and enjoyed being together. And maybe 
I belong with them too, I thought. But maybe not. I wasn't sure where I belonged. Mom and dad told me I was born in New York City and that my mother was either Puerto Rican or Chilean, whatever that was. They really weren't really sure. They said they thought that my real mom had come to the United States from another country just to have me so I could have a better life. They didn't know if she went back home or stayed in New York, but I pictured her sitting on top of the front steps of a row house looking after little brown seven-year-olds like me who played on the sidewalk, dangerously near the street. I was scared for her and those other kids too, because New York City was a really dangerous place, especially in neighborhoods full of black or brown people. That's what I learned from TV and at school. And it must be true because mom and dad thought so too. When I asked about my real mom, mom would say, who knows, if she's still alive and still in this country, she just might still be in New York City, a prostitute or a drug addict maybe. There was some reason she couldn't keep you. We really don't know. Once I asked what a prostitute is, but I didn't exactly understand the answer, just that it was not a good thing to be. She went on, but she may have gone back to where she came from. Poor people in other countries often come here for opportunity. Every mother wants their children to have a better life. She must have come to the US just to have you and then went back home, knowing you would be better off here with us so you could have a better life. We went to the city once when mom wanted to see the wooden escalator at Macy's department store. Dad was really scared driving in the city and later he kept saying, he's glad he didn't have to go there very much. I saw people in the city with really dirty clothes, laying right on the sidewalk, sleeping right on the cold ground. Mom and dad said they were homeless people and there were strange and scary men and sometimes ladies too, running up to dad's window and asking him for money. Even though the, skinny, the city was so scary, I hoped that if she were still alive, that my real mom was living there, because then, maybe someday, I could meet her. Maybe when you're older, you can look. But she didn't want to be found, so I don't think you will find her. I didn't ask about my real mom too many more times, and I stopped asking by the end of second grade. I don't know where Chile was, but I supposed it was a place far, far away because I never heard anyone else ever talk about it. It must have been a million miles away from New Jersey. It seemed to be a place that few people knew about and that fewer ever went to. At least I'd heard kids talking about Puerto Ricans at the bus stop. They called them bad words, twisted their faces and spit on the ground. I didn't tell the other kids that I might be Puerto Rican. I didn't want them to spit on me. And why would I tell them when I wasn't even sure? Instead, I said to my friend one time that I was Cherokee Indian, because that's the only tribe I could think of at the time. He and his whole family then called me Injun, and I was reminded of my lie each time they did. So I tried to change the subject when kids talked about where their families came from. In Miss Lawton's class, I often wished I had the power of invisibility, 
One day she asked whether we looked more like our moms or our dads. I didn't want to answer. And I really didn't like when we had to color in pictures of our families. Nearly all the kids would fight over the flesh-colored crayons. But I had a hard time choosing the right ones for me and Amy. I didn't want to show my mismatched family picture when I was done. One time, I had to go to the nurse because I got really upset when we had to color our families again. At least I didn't have to draw the picture. That was just another way to show how much different my family was, how different I was. The show was starting. I knew the man who played Chico on TV was Puerto Rican, and I imagined that I might grow up to look like him one day. I wouldn't look like him exactly, though, just kind of like him. I'd look like me still, but grown like him, though probably not as tall, I thought. I looked at Dad, smiling on the, at the TV from the couch. His long legs were crossed at the knee, and I could see two pale white rectangles between his dress socks and the hem of his pants. I wouldn't grow up to look anything like Dad. He was so tall and white. His hair was slicked back in the same way he liked it back in the 50s, and he still wore his signature mutton chop sideburns, just like Elvis. His ears were really big. I doubted my ears would ever grow as big as his. We didn't look alike, but somehow he was my dad. I thought maybe me and dad were a lot like Chico and the man. I love that paragraph, Michael, but I think it, it also shows once again, our contrasts that, um, you know, I think I typically looked at my father and I could see myself resembling him somewhat. You know, I remember trying to mock his mannerisms in a lot of ways. He yeah. used to have this habit of biting his lip. And I remember that was something that I always did as well. Um, but it seems like you recognized early on that there was a huge discrepancy in, uh, in your parents and who you were. Oh yeah. Um, it was commented on constantly the shock, you know, back then um, it was very uncommon to have an interracial family and, or interethnic family in my case, more accurately, but you know, where I lived, it was all that much more kind of uh, visible. However, as I mentioned to you before, um, there was a section of town that was sectioned off from the rest of town where there were biracial people um, that lived in, in, in housing areas. You know, get, couldn't be more other side of the tracks. And uh -huh. um, so there was some non-white presence, um, but, you know, it was a very specific thing that it wasn't, uh, it's not easy to describe. I do, I I attempt to um, do it justice in the book, but it's kind of a long story about their history, my reaction in relation to them. Did you feel, did you feel the urge to jump on the other side of the track? Was there an affinity more for uh, those who appear to be more like you or you? No, 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 just the opposite. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be just like all the other white kids, the standard, not in my, only in my, school in my neighborhood in my but in my in my state on my tv you know in my country it's the standard human being is is the is the euro-american 
And I, you know, uh, being different um, was bad enough, but being uh, devalued for that difference was extraordinarily difficult. And uh, frequently enough, um, there was viciousness uh, about the social division, as as you know about racism. It's it's some sometimes very very ugly, and I've received the worst of it at times. And um, so it was it was rough. Hmm. Okay. Um, let Let's continue. Sure. Grandpa and I were sitting together on his favorite reclining chair. Grandma prepared pierogies and kielbasa with Amy and mom looking on from the dining table. Dad and grandpa were asking me if I was excited about watching Evil Knievel jump a tank full of sharks on his motorcycle the next day. What kind of question is that? Who isn't excited? One of my favorite toys was my Evil Knievel wind-up stunt cycle, but I could never get it to stay up like the kids did in the commercial. Then grandpa started talking about work on the loading dock and how those niggers would never keep up with him and the rest of the guys. I was used to hearing him use that word when talking about people on TV, like Muhammad Ali, my favorite boxer, or Hank Aaron, my favorite ball player. But he was now saying it more frequently about the people at work. So I asked him, is that what you think of me, grandpa? Am I a nigger too? His face paled as he twisted around with me on his lap. Am I a nigger too? Oh no, of course not. He looked at dad. No, I, I don't think you're one of them. You're one of us, just like me and your father. Grandpa looked like he felt bad and I didn't want him to feel that way. So I stopped asking about how me and the guys at work might be the same to him. After a while, Grandpa started talking again about the Mets and the Yankees. Grandpa made fun of Dad for being a Mets fan because he always rooted for the Yankees. I guess you couldn't root for both teams. I pushed to one side as Grandpa got up to turn the channel on the big cabinet TV. Oh, there's Chico. I asked Dad what happened because his face turned grim. After a silent moment, he said, Chico shot himself, Andy. Chico's dead. Chico's dead? Why would he shoot himself? How? Sometimes people are really sad and don't want to live anymore. I guess he was really sad. I'm sorry. I know you really liked him. I suppose we'll still be able to watch him on TV for a while. Dad explained more to me when we got home. He told me what Chico did was really something that he would rather close the garage door with the engine running and go to sleep. He said the car exhaust would be deadly, but not painful. He said that would be a better way to go. I sort of knew that Chico was sad. I could tell, but like me, he always wanted to seem happy to make other people feel better. Thank you, Michael. Um... That's incredible. That's a great story. Um, and I can see why it would have such a big impact on you, um, even to this day. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. 
you know, it was, it was, um, it was hard finding mirrors in my little hometown. And, you know, the, the ones that were available on television were, um, you know, vilified, um, made dangerous, uh, othered, made ridiculed. There was really nothing to hold on to uh, mm-hmm. when you're trying to build a, the beginnings of an ethnic identity. And it was a real problem uh, for most of my decades. Um, still is a problem. But, uh, you know, I continue to work on my fractured identity. As you know, I'm studying Spanish. I'm uh, I'm quite a streak. And I'm now actually doing it in person in, in a class, which is a big deal for me because I'm nervous around people. But, uh, you know, I'm doing that it's, matters to me. What would you tell that 10 year old self of yours now? If, if you could, uh, if you could have his ear, um, what would you tell him to help break down some of these racial barriers, break down some of his insecurities and help him navigate this, this confusing and splintered world that he's living in? Um, good question. Um, you can trust your instincts. You're not being told the truth about um, your place in the world as a brown person or your place, uh, your, your experience as an adopted person. And those two things will be intricately, intricately intertwined throughout your life. That's yeah. your challenge to overcome, to situate these two matters, race and That's- adoption. Yeah, I mean, that is such a difficult um, position. And once again, to, to kind of highlight our, our, our contrasts, you know, I think that I was probably in similar situations, but, you know, given that I could blend, I became the ultimate Italian kid, you know, that I had to have the Italian horn. I had to have the, I had to, you know, take, take Italian class in, in middle school. Um, you know, to, you know, that compliant adoptee, you know, to hypercompensate, you know, for those feelings by throwing myself into, you know, into my environment. But for you, that just really wasn't an option, I see, in a lot of, you know, a lot of these circumstances. You couldn't just say, let me dance the, the, let me dance the polka and eat some pierogies because I'm a nice Polish kid. You know, I, I will that and you couldn't even pull that off to yourself. Am nobody I wanted it more than me. I wanted to fit in so badly uh, that, you know, I didn't really even understand this. I mean, it was such a driving force in my life because, you know, when you're constantly separated um, and again, devalued, um, you know, you it, it's hard. Believing, you almost, it's almost that you start believing those. Oh, I did. I, uh, I totally, I very much internalized those, those derogatory statements that I, yes, I absolutely internalized um, the low value assignment that I was given as both um, a, a ethnic minority and as an adoptee and the stigma that comes with that. Check out parts two and three of what you don't know won't hurt you.
on oath. To Richmond around then Before you knew what was possible and There's a relic in your old hands It's strong words to fight with I think we should walk away